0: The Story of Psychology with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, Part 4 The 1900s. Jung Sigmund Freud said that the goal of therapy was to make the unconscious conscious. He certainly made that the goal of his work as a theorist, and yet he makes the unconscious sound very unpleasant, to say the least. It is a cauldron of seething desires, a bottomless pit of perverse and incestuous cravings, a burial ground for frightening experiences, which nevertheless come back to haunt us. Frankly, it doesn't sound like anything I'd like to make conscious. A younger colleague of Freud's, Carl Jung, was to make the exploration of this inner space his life's work. He went equipped with a background in Freudian theory, of course, and with an apparently inexhaustible knowledge of mythology, religion, and philosophy. Jung was especially knowledgeable in the symbolism of complex mystical traditions such as Gnosticism, alchemy, Kabbalah, and similar traditions in Hinduism and Buddhism. If anyone could make sense of the unconscious and its habit of revealing itself only in symbolic form, it would be Carl Jung. He had, in addition, a capacity for very lucid dreaming and occasional visions. In the fall of 1913, Jung had a vision of what he called a monstrous flood, engulfing most of Europe and lapping at the mountains of his native Switzerland. He saw thousands of people drowning and civilization crumbling. And then the waters turned into blood. This vision was followed in the next few weeks by dreams of eternal winters and rivers of blood. Jung was afraid that he was becoming psychotic. But on August 1st of that year, World War I began. Jung felt that there had been a connection somehow between himself as an individual and humanity in general that could not be explained away. From then until 1928, he was to go through a rather painful process of self-exploration that formed the basis of all his later theorizing. He carefully recorded his dreams, fantasies, and visions, and drew, painted, and sculpted them as well. He found that his experiences tended to form themselves into persons, beginning with a wise old man, and his companion, a little girl. The wise old man evolved, over a series of dreams, into a sort of spiritual guru. The little girl became Anima, the feminine soul, who served as his main medium of communication with the deeper aspects of his unconscious. A leathery brown dwarf would show up guarding the entrance to the unconscious, He was the shadow, a primitive companion for Jung's ego. Jung dreamt that he and the dwarf killed a beautiful blonde youth, whom he called Siegfried. For Jung, this killing represented a warning about the dangers of the worship of glory and heroism which would soon cause so much sorrow all over Europe. And it represented a warning about the dangers of some of his own tendencies toward hero worship of Sigmund Freud. Jung dreamt a great deal about the dead, the land of the dead and the rising of the dead. These represented the unconscious itself Not the little personal unconscious that Freud made such a big deal out of, but a new collective unconscious of humanity itself. An unconscious that can contain all of the dead, not just our personal ghosts. Jung began to see the mentally ill as people who were haunted by these ghosts in an age where no one is supposed to even believe in them. If we could only recapture our mythologies, we would understand these ghosts, become comfortable with the dead, and heal our mental illnesses. Critics have suggested that Jung was, very simply, mentally ill himself when all of this happened. But Jung felt that if you want to understand the jungle, you can't be content to just sail back and forth near the shore, You've got to get into it, no matter how strange or how frightening it might seem. Carl Gustav Jung was born July 26, 1875, in the small Swiss village of Kessweil. His father was Paul Jung. A country parson, and his mother was Emily Preiswerk Jung. As a young man, Jung was surrounded by a fairly well-educated extended family, including quite a few clergymen and some eccentrics as well. The elder Jung started Karl on Latin when he was six years old, beginning a lifelong interest in language and literature, especially ancient literature. Besides most modern Western European languages, Jung could also read several ancient ones, including Sanskrit, the language of the original Hindu holy books. Carl Jung was a rather solitary adolescent, who did not care much for school, and especially couldn't take competition. He went to boarding school in Basel, Switzerland, where he found himself the object of a lot of jealous harassment. He began to use sickness as an excuse, developing an embarrassing tendency to faint under pressure. Although his first career choice was archaeology, Jung went on to study medicine at the University of Basel. While working under the famous neurologist Kraft Ebbing, he settled on psychiatry as his career. After graduating, Jung took a position at the Bergholzzi Mental Hospital in Zurich under Eugene Bleuler, an expert on, and the namer of, schizophrenia. If you would like to learn more about some of the salacious details and intrigue that occurred during Jung's tenure at the mental hospital, please listen to the podcast titled A Dangerous Method. In 1903, Jung married Emma Rauschenbach. He also taught classes at the University of Zurich, had a private practice, and invented word association around this time. Long an admirer of Freud, Jung finally met his mentor in Vienna in 1907. The story goes that after they met, Freud canceled all of his appointments for the day, and Jung and Freud talked for 13 hours straight. Such was the impact of the meeting of these two great minds. Freud eventually came to see Jung as the crown prince of psychoanalysis and his heir apparent. But Jung had never been entirely sold on Freud's theory. Their relationship began to cool in 1909 during a trip to America, During a very extended travel time, from Vienna to New York, Freud and Jung entertained themselves by analyzing each other's dreams. This was more fun, apparently, than playing shuffleboard. But at some point, Freud began to show an excess of resistance to Jung's effort at analysis. Freud finally said that they'd have to stop because he was afraid that he would lose his authority. Jung felt rather insulted. Now, World War I was a painful period of self-examination for Jung. It was, however, also the beginning of one of the most interesting theories of personality that the world has ever seen. After the war, Jung traveled widely, visiting, for example, tribal people in Africa. America, and India. He retired in 1946 and began to retreat from public attention after his wife died in 1955. Carl Jung died on June 6, 1961, in Zurich. theory divides the psyche into three parts. The first is the ego, which Jung identifies with the conscious mind. Closely related is the personal unconscious, which includes anything which is not presently conscious but can be. The personal unconscious is like most people's understanding of the unconscious in that it includes both memories that are easily brought to mind, And those that have been suppressed for some reason. But it does not include the instincts that Freud would have it include. But then Jung adds the part of the psyche that makes his theory stand out from all others. The collective unconscious. You could call this a psychic inheritance. It is the reservoir of all of our experiences as a species a kind of knowledge that we are all born with, and yet we can never be directly conscious of it. It influences all of our experiences and behaviors, and most especially the emotional ones. But we only know about it indirectly by looking at those influences. There are some experiences that show the effect of the collective unconscious more clearly than others. The experiences of love at first sight, of déjà vu, the feeling that you've been here before, and the immediate recognition of certain symbols and the meanings of certain myths. All of these could be understood as the sudden conjunction of our outer reality and the inner reality of the collective unconscious. Grander examples are the creative experiences shared by artists and musicians on all over the world and in all times, or the spiritual experiences of mystics of all religions, or the parallels in dreams, fantasies, mythologies, fairy tales, and literature. A good example that has been greatly discussed recently is the near-death experience. It seems that many people of many different cultural backgrounds find that they have very similar recollections when they are brought back from a close encounter with death. They speak of leaving their bodies, of seeing their bodies, and the events that were surrounding them very clearly. They speak of being pulled through a long tunnel toward a bright light, of seeing deceased relatives or religious figures waiting for them, and of their disappointment, at having to leave this happy scene to return to their bodies. Perhaps we are all built to experience death in this fashion. The contents of the collective unconscious are also called archetypes. Jung also called them dominants, imagos, Mythological or primordial images, and a few other names, but archetype seems to have won out over all of those others. An archetype is an unlearned tendency to experience things in a certain way. The archetype has no form of its own, but it acts as an organizing principle on the things that we see or do. It works the way that instincts work in Freud's theory. At first, the baby just wants something to eat without knowing what it wants. It has a rather indefinite yearning, which, nonetheless, can be satisfied by some things and not by others. Later, with experience, the child begins to yearn for something more specific when the child is hungry a bottle, a cookie a broiled lobster, a slice of New York-style pizza. The archetype is like a black hole in space. You only know that it is there by how it draws matter and light to itself. The mother archetype is a particularly good example. All of our ancestors had mothers. We have evolved in an environment that included a mother or a mother substitute. We would never have survived without our connection with a nurturing individual during our time as a helpless infant. It stands to reason that we are built in a way that recognizes that evolutionary environment. We come into this world ready to want mother to seek her, to recognize her, to deal with her. So the mother archetype is our built-in ability to recognize a certain relationship, that of mothering. Jung says that this is rather abstract and that we are likely to project the archetype out into the world and onto a particular person. Now, usually this is our own mother Even when the archetype doesn't have a particular real person available, we tend to personify the archetype. That is, we turn it into a mythological storybook character, and this character symbolizes the archetype. The mother archetype is symbolized by the primordial mother, or the earth mother, of mythology by Eve or Mary in Western Christian traditions, or by less personal symbols such as the church, the nation, a forest, or the ocean. According to Jung, someone whose own mother failed to satisfy the demands of the archetype may well be one who spends his or her life seeking comfort in the church, or by identification with the motherland or in meditating upon the figure of Mary or in a life at sea. Of the more important archetypes, we have the shadow, which represents our animal ancestry and is often the locus of our concerns with evil and our own dark side. There is the anima, representing the female side of men, and the animos, representing the male side of women. And there's the persona, which is the surface self, like a mask that can be worn. It is the part of us that we allow others to see. Other archetypes include the father archetype, the child, the family, the hero archetype, the maiden, The animal, the wise old man who becomes a guide or a spiritual guru, the hermaphrodite, God, and the first man. The goal of life is to realize the self. The self is an archetype that represents the transcendence of all opposites so that every aspect of your personality is expressed equally. You are then neither and both male and female, neither and both ego and shadow, neither and both good and bad, neither and both conscious and unconscious, neither and both an individual and the whole of creation. And yet, with no oppositions, there is no energy, and you cease to act. Of course, you no longer need to act. Now, to keep this from getting too mystical, think of it as a new center, a a more balanced position for your psyche. When you're young... You focus on the ego, and you worry about the trivialities of persona. You worry about the way that you appear to others and the way that you dress. But when you are older, assuming you have been developing, as you should, you focus a little deeper on the self, upon the real you. You become closer to all people, all life, perhaps even to the universe itself. The self-realized person is actually less selfish. Catherine Briggs and her daughter Isabel Briggs Myers found Jung's ideas about people's personalities so compelling that they decided to develop a paper and pencil test, and it came to be called the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, the MBTI, and is one of the most popular and most studied tests around. On the basis of your answers to some 125 questions, you're placed in one of 16 types, with the understanding that some people might find themselves somewhere between two or three types. What type you are says quite a bit about you, your likes and your dislikes, your likely career choices, your compatibility with others, and so on. People tend to like it quite a bit, and it has the unusual quality among personality tests of not being too judgmental. None of the types is terribly negative, nor are any overly positive. Rather than assessing how crazy you are, the Myers-Briggs, simply opens up your personality for exploration. The test has four scales. Extroversion and introversion, or E and I, is the most important. Test researchers have found that about 75% of the population is extroverted. Now, the next scale is sensing or intuiting, S and N, with about 75% of the population being sensing. Sensing. The next scale is thinking and feeling, T and F. Although these are distributed evenly through the population, research seems to have found that two-thirds of men are thinkers, while two-thirds of women are feelers. This might seem like stereotyping, but keep in mind that feeling and thinking are both equally valued by the Jungians, and that one-third of men are feelers and one-third of women are thinkers. Note, however, that society perhaps does not value thinking and feeling the same, and that feeling men or thinking women often have difficulties dealing with other people's stereotyped expectations of them. The last of the four scales is judging versus perceiving, J or P. Now this is not one of Jung's original dimensions. Myers and Briggs included this one in order to help determine which of a person's functions is superior. Now, generally, judging people are more careful, perhaps more inhibited in their lives. Perceiving people tend to be more spontaneous, perhaps careless. If you are an extrovert and a J judging, you are a thinker or a feeler, whichever is stronger. Extroverted and perceiving means that you are a sensor or intuiter. On the other hand, an introvert with a high J score will be a sensor or intuiter, while an introvert with a high P score will be a thinker or feeler. J and P are equally distributed in the population. quite a few people find that Jung has a great deal to say to them. These people include writers, artists, musicians, filmmakers, theologians, clergy of all denominations, students of mythology, and, of course, some psychologists. Examples that come to mind are the mythologist Joseph Campbell, the filmmaker George Lucas, and the science fiction author, Ursula K. Le Guin. Anyone interested in creativity, spirituality, psychic phenomena, the universal, and so on, will find in Jung a kindred spirit. But scientists, including most psychologists, have a lot of trouble with Jung. Not only does he fully support the teleological view, as do most personality theorists, But he also goes a step further and talks about the mystical interconnectedness of synchronicity. Not only does he postulate on the unconscious, where things are not easily available to the empirical eye, but he postulates on a collective unconscious that never has been and never will be conscious. In fact, Jung takes an approach that is essentially the reverse of the mainstream's reductionism, Jung begins with the highest levels, even spiritualism, and derives the lower levels of psychology and physiology from them. Even psychologists who applaud his teleology and anti reductionist position may not be comfortable with him. Like Freud, Jung tries to bring everything into his system. He has little room for chance, accident, or circumstances personality, and life in general, seems overexplained in Jung's theory. I have found that his theory sometimes attracts students who have difficulty dealing with reality. When the world, especially the social world, becomes too difficult, some people retreat into fantasy. Some, for example, become couch potatoes, spending much of their time playing video games or watching internet porn. Others turn to complex ideologies or religions that pretend to explain everything. Some get involved in Gnostic or Tantric religions, the kind that present intricate rosters of angels and demons and heavens and hells and endlessly discuss those symbols. Some go to Jung. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with this, but for someone who is out of touch with reality, this is hardly going to help. Now these criticisms do not cut the foundation out from under Jung's theory, but they do suggest that some careful consideration is in order.